0: Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, "'Make everyone go out from me.' So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, "'I am Joseph. Is my father still alive?' But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, "'Come near to me, please.' And they came near, and he said, "'I am your brother, Joseph.'" Whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell on the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see me, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated.
1: Good morning. My name is Nathan, and I'm one of the uh, pastors here at New King, and uh, I'm glad that you all are here on this uh, unusually sunny day. Uh, We went a long time without seeing the sun, and now it's been here a lot, so that's exciting. Um. This morning, we are finally to uh, the climax of this story in Genesis 45. If you're new here, maybe this is your first Sunday or just have been here a couple of Sundays. Uh, We've been going through this uh, story. We've really been going through the whole book of Genesis since about May. And uh, we've been specifically in the story of Joseph the past few weeks. And last week we got through chapter uh, 44, and chapter 45 is this climax of this story that we've been waiting uh, to hear. And so Ben got us all the way to the cliffhanger uh, last week, and then Ben just left us hanging. So um, one of the things that I want to do is I want to get us back on that cliff. And the story of Joseph is kind of this overarching story. I want us to be in it. So, I'm gonna go all the way back to Genesis 37 and I'm gonna catch us up, okay? It's a pretty long story. It's gonna take a minute. So, just buckle up. Uh, But I want to make sure that we kind of grasp where we ended in 44 before we get to 45. So, way back in Genesis 37, we're introduced to Jacob's son, Joseph. And Joseph is this kind of 17 year old uh, punk which is entirely Jacob's fault because Jacob has a problem with favoritism. And so he gave Joseph this fancy coat, and Joseph loves to put it on, and he prances around his other ten brothers, uh, and really they hate the guy. And so uh, to make matters worse, Joseph has these dreams. And in these dreams, his brothers are bowing down to them. And so uh, he doesn't hesitate to tell them about these dreams, and that in no way endears, them, or endears him to them. And so one day, these 10 brothers decide that they are going to kill him. And so Reuben, who's the firstborn, he's like, nah, let's just throw him in a pit. Uh, we don't want to kill him. So they rip off his fancy jacket, and they toss him in a pit. And so I guess they're trying to figure out what to do. And Judah suggested they sell him to this group of Ishmaelites that are coming heading to Egypt. So they do just that. They sell him into slavery, and Joseph finds himself in Egypt, desperate and alone. And so when he gets to Egypt, an officer of Pharaoh's named Potiphar buys Joseph. And the Lord is with Joseph, and he makes him successful, so much so that Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole entire house, That is, until Mrs. Potiphar frames Joseph and makes it look like he tried to sleep with her uh, when, in fact, he didn't. And so Potiphar tosses Joseph into uh, the dungeon in this house, into prison. And so while Joseph is in prison, Pharaoh throws his cupbearer and his baker into this same prison. And so all throughout the story of Joseph, we see that God is with him and that God is making him successful. And so he's put in charge of these two officials in prison. And while they're under his care, they both have dreams one night. And they wake up and they're terrified about these dreams. And so Joseph boldly proclaims that the interpretation of dreams belongs to God. And then through the Lord, he interprets their dreams for him. And so the cupbearer is restored and he promises Joseph, hey, as soon as I get out, uh, I'm going to tell Pharaoh about you and I'll get you out except that he doesn't for two whole years. And then one night, Pharaoh has these two dreams about cows and wheat, and none of the wise men or the magicians in Egypt can figure out what these dreams meant. And suddenly, uh, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And so Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and he brings him in, and Joseph interprets the dream. Seven years of abundance, and then seven years of Famine. And so he gives Pharaoh this plan that God gives him to really save not only Egypt, but the entire world. And so that brings us to the current uh, section of this story. So none of Joseph's family knows what's happening to him while he is in Egypt. For all they know, he's dead. Uh, But the famine is not just centered in Egypt, it's around the whole region. And so uh, it's reached Canaan, where these brothers and Jacob live. And they have run out of food, and they need to go buy food in Egypt. So Jacob sends the boys off to Egypt to buy grain, where they unknowingly meet Joseph. And Joseph immediately knows who they are, but he looks at Jephson. He's speaking their language. He's using an interpreter with uh, these brothers. And so he hides himself intentionally from them and doesn't let them know who he is. And so Joseph decides to test them. And so he questions them, and he accuses them of being spies. And so they tell him, no, we're from Canaan, where our father and our younger brother still are, uh, and we're definitely not spies. We've just come to buy food. And so Joseph says, no, I know you're spies. And so he throws them into prison for three days. And on the third day, he comes to them, and he says, all right, I'm going to keep one of you, and the rest of you go back home to your father and bring back your youngest brother, and then I'll know that you're not spies. So the brothers kind of reluctantly agree to this. Uh, Then they're like, well, we're being punished. We uh, tried to kill uh, Joseph, then we sold him into slavery, uh, and so we shouldn't have done that, and the Lord is punishing us. And Joseph understands what they're saying, right? Because he speaks their language. And so uh, he uh, turns away and he, he has a good cry. He cries it out. And when he comes back, he takes Simeon and he sends the rest of the brothers uh, home to Jacob. But before they leave, he gets one of his servants to sneak the silver that they had brought to buy grain back into their bags. And on the way home, uh, one of the brothers gets the bag out to feed their animals, and he discovers that he, his silver is in it, and together they're all terrified, and they begin asking, uh, what is this that God has done to us? He is certainly punishing us. And so they get home, they tell Jacob what happens, and in typical Jacob fashion, he's like, everything happens to me, you're not taking Benjamin, just forget the whole thing. Meanwhile, poor Simeon is back in Egypt in prison like it doesn't matter. So some time passes. They use up the grain. I guess Jacob gets hungry enough. And he's like, guys, you've got to go back to Egypt. Uh, and Judah says, dad, if we're going to go, if we, ha- if we go back to Egypt, we have got to take Benjamin with us. If we go and we don't have Benjamin, this guy is going to kill us. And uh, Jacob is like, absolutely not. Um, there's no way I'm going to let you have, have uh, Benjamin. you have already caused me grief. Uh, Benjamin is the only son I have left, and so no, I'm not going to send him. And so Judah steps up and Judah says, "Look, Dad, anything nothing will happen to Benjamin. Uh, I, will, I will give up my life for him." And so Jacob finally agrees. They get some gifts together, and uh, they double their silver. They're going to return the silver that was put in their bags. And off they go to Egypt, Benjamin along with them. And so when they get to Egypt, they immediately see Joseph. And when he sees uh, that they have Benjamin, he tells his servants to bring them into his house and to prepare a banquet for them in the middle of a famine. He's going to throw them a banquet. And So the brother's thinking he's definitely going to make us his slaves. And so they quickly tell the servant, hey, so we're totally not spies. Uh, We came to buy grain. When we left, we looked in our bags, and our silver had been put back in it. Uh, But we brought it back. We we doubled it because we need to buy more grain. And the guy says, no big deal. I got your servant. I I think your God must have just put your silver uh, back in your bags. And so then Simeon, after being completely abandoned, is brought back out. They clean everybody up, and they have a banquet. And um, Joseph walks in. And they bow down to him, uh, once again, uh, proving his dream to be true, and they present gifts with, uh, to him. And so they ask him, or he asks them, uh, if his father is well, and if this is Benjamin, um, and then he's overcome with emotion. So he kind of like runs out of the room. And I love that Joseph is a, qu- a crier. It makes me feel way better about my own self. Um, And so then he he pulls himself together and he comes out and the the mill comes out and Joseph loads them up and Benjamin gets five times what all the other brothers get and that's a test to see uh, what they think about this new favorite son. And so then the final test comes. Joseph tells his servant to put his cup into Benjamin's sack and then send them on their way. And so they do. They load up and off they go back home. But then the next day, Jesus sends his men to go track him down and to find the cup uh, and get it back. And so they catch up to the brothers, and they're like, We did not steal this cup. Uh, So much so, we're so positive that we didn't steal this cup, that if you find it, just go ahead and kill the guy that uh, took it. And uh, the rest of us will be slaves. And so Joseph says, "No, we're not going to do all that. We'll just look for the cup. And when we find it, that guy will be—we'll uh, take him back." And so they start search. They start the search, and lo and behold, the cup is in Benjamin's sack. And so all the brothers are just overcome with grief, and they—sorry—they um, uh, tear their clothes, and off they go back to uh, the city they're immediately repentant of their sin. Not because they stole the cup, they didn't steal the cup. But they, they recognize that God is doing something in their lives, that they shouldn't have treated Joseph like they did. And so they are repentant. And Judah, when they get back to Joseph, and maybe the highest point in Judah's life, he pleads with Joseph to take his life over benjamin's and so finally we reach chapter 45 and we with the question are we we ask what will joseph say what will joseph think Uh, what's going to happen next and so we see that joseph gets in another good cry and in verse 3 he says to his brothers i'm joseph is my father still living but they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence and Joseph couldn't take it any longer. He has seen that his brothers have changed. They're not the same guy guys that they were 20 years ago. They'll do anything to protect Benjamin. They're not going to allow Jacob to be overcome with grief again. Uh, they seem repentant. They've, they've already said that. And so that's what Joseph is thinking. And on the flip side of this story, you have these brothers who are scared out of their minds, Right? So could it really be that the second most powerful man in Egypt, the second most powerful man in the known world at the time, is Joseph, who when they last saw him was in shackles headed to Egypt with a group of Ishmaelites. Could it be that the second most powerful man in the world just so happens to be looking at them, this guilty group of brothers who all but killed him some 20 years earlier? Could it be that this brother that they sought to put an end to will actually end up putting an end to them? So Joseph tells them in verse 4 to come near to him. He says, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold in Egypt, and now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it's not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And So he continues telling them to go get Jacob, to bring the whole family back to Egypt, that he's going to provide for every need that they have. Uh, he affirms that uh, it's truly him, and, and through him they will find deliverance over the course of this famine for the next five years. And then this section in chapter 45 ends with Joseph weeping and hugging all of them, and in a way that only the Bible can, uh, ends, it ends with this understatement of the, cha- the chapter, and it just says uh, that afterward his brothers talked with him. Uh, yeah, I bet they had a few things to catch up on. And so I think that the the predominant theme here in this passage is radical forgiveness, which is what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about. So I'm going to look at two main points. Number one is that believers are called to radical forgiveness. And number two is that believers have been radically forgiven. So let's look at the first. Believers are called to radical forgiveness. If you will, turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 18. Here in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus with a question. In verse 21, he says, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I love Peter. I can't wait to meet Peter. Uh, Here he is with this sincere question, How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times, seven whole times. Should I forgive my brother seven times? And where does Peter come up with this number? Well, the rabbis of the day would have told people, "Hey, forgive your brother or your sister three times, and then you don't have to forgive them anymore." And so Peter, being the good guy that he is, he doubles that and adds one because he knows that Jesus is better than the rabbis. He's not fully understanding what's going on, but he's like, "Well, seven. Uh, surely that's enough, Lord, right?" Uh, but what does Jesus say to him? Look at verse 22. I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Well, that's a, that's a lot more than seven. Uh, which is really what Jesus is really saying is just forgive them forever. There is no end to the forgiveness that you need to offer. And then he tells this parable starting in verse 23. He says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to sell accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of the servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him his loan. The ser- that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii? He grabbed him, started choking him, and say, "Pay what you owe." At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, "Be patient with me, and I will pay you back." But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, "You wicked servant!" I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from the heart. Jesus here is commanding radical forgiveness. This debt of 10,000 talents would equal maybe billions, certainly millions in today's money. This king had lost a lot of money, but out of sheer, sheer compassion, he forgives this servant. And when we hear this parable, we think it's outlandish that moments after being forgiven an impossible debt, this servant throws someone else in jail over something so minuscule. And we should think that. Yet when we withhold forgiveness, we are this servant. Let me be clear, Jesus isn't declaring here that forgiveness is easy. I don't think he's declaring that it's even natural to forgive. Quite frankly, I think the first instinct that we all have, and I'm sure you felt this, when someone does something wrong to us, we want to demand justice. Further, when we sin against someone and we feel shame or guilt, it's because even as the sinner, we understand that there's a demand for justice. But what he is saying is that to be Christian is to be a forgiver. Look back at Genesis 45. Keep a finger in Matthew 18, though. When Joseph responds to his brothers in Genesis uh, 45, 5, there's a sense of necessary justice in the air. He says to them, and now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. Everyone in the room knows that Joseph can, at best, Throw these guys into prison, or at worst, have them killed. Uh, that's, that's the one thing that, that, that Pharaoh has given him authority over. He can do basically whatever he wants to do. And nobody in Pharaoh's palace would have questioned uh, him if he had chosen to do that. But look at, uh, he's, he's already caught them in their sins. They know that he's caught them. Judah said in chapter 44, 16, What can we say to my Lord? How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servants' iniquity. And yet, what does Joseph do to them? He offers them radical forgiveness. He says, Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant. You can settle in the land of Goshen, and there I will sustain you. The brothers have shown Joseph their hearts have changed. They're repentant over what they had done to Joseph, to Jacob, and ultimately to God. And what does Joseph do in return? He offers them radical forgiveness. And so I'm building to the truest and the best reason that we forgive, but I want to walk us through how Joseph is able to forgive them uh, what they did to him. Why is it that Joseph can forgive them for these things? It's because Joseph understands that the purposes of God outweigh his feelings. The purposes of God are bigger and better than the fleeting quince of man-made justice here on earth. Look again at what he says. He says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. I mean, the irony of the statement, he's standing face to face with these guys who intended to kill him. And he's saying, God did this in order to preserve your life. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. What has God promised all throughout the book of Genesis? Seed and land. And we're waiting on the one that he promised in Genesis 3 that would come to crush the head of the serpent. We're waiting on this nation that Abraham has been promised to be born. And what is this great deliverance? That God put Joseph into power with a plan to save the known world. From famine, but more importantly, he put Joseph in in power to save this particular family. These are the descendants of Abraham who will bless the nations. God is saving this remnant, remnant, so that His promises will go forth. But far greater than Joseph even understands, this statement points to the future in Exodus when God will save a nation of millions in order to display his glory and give them the land that he had been promising to them. And how does God choose to do it? Through the sins of these ten men who hated their brother. He refused to believe they would ever bow down to him like his dream implied. Who planned to kill him, who sold him to some Ishmaelite traders, through the sins of Mrs. Potiphar, who framed Joseph in her bedroom, through the sins of the cupbearer and the baker who ended up in prison, through the cupbearer's forgetfulness and eventual remembrance. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant and used for good. Several years ago, Amain and I went through a trial when a couple who were friends of ours just blatantly sinned against us. Uh, We were following God's call in our life to do something that was actually really pretty mundane at the church that we came from down in Alabama, and they didn't like it. And so they made all these lies up about us. They told other people and got them to believe these lies about us. Um, And really, the details are so absurd that it would take away from the point. And here's the point. That trial was worth every second of our misery, which ended up being a great deal. It strengthened our marriage, it built up godly courage in our lives. It gave us an understanding of why we were doing what God had called us to do. It reminded us over and over what God has done for us, and it gave us an opportunity to practice Matthew 18:22 to forgive 70 times seven. I remember vividly we would see this couple at church on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights and all of the feelings would just come back in my heart, all the feelings and emotions. And yet the Lord was gracious to whisper over and over again in my ear, 70 times seven. Twice a week until honestly we left Alabama, I forgave these two in my, when my flesh took over and, and tried to tell my heart that it wasn't worth it. It helped us to understand that the purposes of God are bigger and better than we can ever imagine, that he is weaving together our story, that he is using his spirit to form us into the image of his son. And many of you sitting here have been sinned against. Some of those sins have been quite horrendous. You've been hurt in unimaginable ways. Your lives have been changed because of someone else's sins or someone else's choices. And as a believer in and a follower of the Lord Jesus, brothers and sisters, you have been called to radically forgive. The world will tell you differently. The world will tell you that you're a victim. The world will tell you to just cancel that person. The world will tell you to wear your hurts as a badge of honor. But the Father, the Father tells you to radically forgive. Now don't hear me say that sin doesn't have consequences and things don't need to be dealt with. I'm not telling you to stay in harmful situations or to ignore the law. There are terrible things that happen, and those things need to be dealt with correctly. Forgiveness isn't a call to sweep things under the rug. It's a call to be reconciled to one another. Look back to Matthew 18. This question comes after, uh, directly after Jesus' explanation of reconciling sin. In Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The Bible is clear. We are to reconcile our differences. Sin needs to be dealt with, but forgiveness is the way of believers. Colossians three twelve and 13 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Ephesians 4.32 And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. The heart of the Christian is bent, should be bent, towards Forgiveness. God is working out his purposes in your life. They are bigger and better than what you can see. Trust God's sovereign hand and be quick to forgive. And ultimately, why should we forgive? Number two, because believers have been radically forgiven. Go back to Genesis 45. As I was reading this earlier in the week, it struck me that it was really familiar Verse 3 in chapter 45, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. And Joseph's brothers, they lay bare before him. Their sins had been found out. Uh, The one who they had sinned against had found them out. And as they're standing before Joseph, I really think that they expect to die. It struck me that this story is so reminiscent of Eden. In Genesis 3, we're told that after Adam and Eve take and eat the fruit, in verse 7, it says, "...then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, uh, Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden." God instructed Adam back in Genesis 2 not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when they did, they would surely die. When God comes to them after they've eaten and he begins talking with them, they stand there and they expect to die. Except no one dies. Joseph's brothers don't die. Adam and Eve don't die. They all live. Joseph says to his brothers, God has sent me ahead of you, to preserve life. And God says to Eve that out of her offspring will come the one that will crush the head of the serpent. That is to say that through Eve, God is preserving life. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. We all deserve death. But the story of Genesis, though, is the story of God time and time again preserving life. In the garden, he preserves Adam and Eve's life. During the flood, he preserves Noah and his family's lives through the ark. In the Tower of Babel, God separates the nations and in essence preserves their life. God calls Abram out of Ur to preserve his life. Abram goes and defeats the tribal kings of the region and God allows him to preserve Lot's life. Hagar is alone in the desert, and the angel of the Lord appears to her in order to preserve her life. Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah to kill him, and at the very last moment, God sends a ram and he preserves Isaac's life. Over and over throughout the story of Joseph, we see God preserving life, ultimately in, in chapter 45. Brothers and sisters, the story of Genesis is that from the very beginning, God has been about the work of preserving life. Since the beginning, God has been about the salvation of his people. The preservation of life will continue book after book as you walk through the Bible, picture after picture of sinful humans deserving death, but yet God preserving life. But in order to truly preserve life, something has to die. True forgiveness demands sacrifice. Hebrews 9:22 says without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin. Each of, the, each of us in this room have sinned against a holy God who demands righteousness. We deserve eternal death. But when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the cover of darkness early on in the book of John, what does Jesus say to him? God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so everyone who believes in him will not die but will have life. Believers, through Jesus' death on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave, your life has been preserved. The penalty you deserve has been radically forgiven. Far greater than any penalty ever done to you, your penalty against an infinitely holy God has been completely and totally forgiven. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 gives us a a great picture of the radical forgiveness of God. It says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the beloved one. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring bring praise to his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believe, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. Believer, God has not just simply forgiven you. He has radically forgiven you an impossible debt. That, and then he has lavished on you grace upon grace. He has given us every spiritual blessing. He has made us blameless. He has adopted us as sons. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. He has given us an inheritance. He has sealed us in the Holy Spirit. So that on that final day, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we won't be expecting death. He will preserve our lives for all of eternity. You may be here today and you haven't put your faith in the Lord Friend, you've sinned against an infinitely holy God, and the penalty for your sin is eternal separation from God. You deserve death. But God has made a way for your sins to be paid through the death of Jesus and your relationship to be restored with him. He has made a way not just for your forgiveness, but for you to be brought into his family. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I'd invite you to do that today. There'll be people in the back when I'm done to talk with you about that. This story of Joseph and his brothers ends in radical forgiveness. As we continue in the story next week, we'll see that Joseph lavishes his family with more than they could ever imagine. And brothers and sisters, believe in the purposes of God. Remember your forgiveness and live a life that is bent toward radical forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in our sin and our debt that we could not pay, you sent to us yourself to live a sinless life, to do that which we could not do and to pay for the penalty of our sin on the cross. Father, we thank you for Jesus's resurrection in which you have given us abundant life for all of eternity with you. Father, we pray that you would remind us over and over of the ways that you have forgiven us and that we would be a people who are quick to forgive Father, we pray that you would bend our hearts towards forgiveness. That we would resist the temptation to cling to our hurts. That we would remember you and that we would forgive. Father, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray.